Tonight's New Testament passage comes from the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. It can also be found on page 4 of your bulletin. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan. I serve as one of the elders here at Grace Downtown, also a pastoral intern. Uh, and it's a joy to be back up here in front of you all. So will you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, sometimes uh, stories like this can feel very distant from us. Sometimes you can feel distant from us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, draw near to us during this time as we seek to open up your word, that you would uh, implant it in us, that you would teach us your truth, that you would make us more firm in our faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. For the, uh, the church in Acts, this new people that we've been studying together over the last few months, this pattern keeps emerging in their storyline. There's, there's growth, and then there's persecution, right? 
the church grows and expands, the gospel explodes, and then there's persecution. The word spreads, and then Christians are thrown in prison, left and right. This is already the, the third time, actually, that Peter's been put in prison, so this is nothing new for him. He's usually in there with other people, actually, so it's unusual that he's alone. Paul's going to be thrown in prison over and over again with his missionary friends. It's a common story. This pattern just keeps coming over and over again. And if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we're coming out of this really, uh, this really momentous story in Acts 10 and 11. Christianity in the first decade or so after Jesus' death and resurrection is primarily a Jewish religion. Then we have this moment where Peter, our guy here, has this conviction to go and preach to people outside of the Jewish community, and then the rest of his uh, believing companions follow him, and they see all this fruit, and they see all this belief, all this repentance and conversion from their message. And the early church is beginning to come to grips with just how expansive the vision for Christ's church actually is, that this promise is for all people, not just this small subset of Jews. And then right on cue, here comes King Herod onto the scene. You know, persecution at the, at the hands of the Jewish leaders was nothing new for God's church in Acts, but now the Roman-appointed ruler is in on it too. And as the, the vision for God's church grows in the minds of Peter and the apostles and others in the church, the perceived threat of the church grows in Herod's mind. This uh, Herod, by the way, this King Herod that's referenced here, he's the grandson of the more famous Herod the Great that some of you might remember from the story of Jesus' birth that we celebrate every Christmas time. But if you remember that character, you'll know the, the apple doesn't really fall too far from the tree here. We see a, a lot of the same cruelty, uh, impulsiveness, insecurity that we saw in his grandfather. This, uh, this King Herod in our text is not a subtle person. He's very loud with his power. He will do whatever it takes to preserve and strengthen that power. Now he's set his sights on God's church. Before we uh, dig more into Peter's story, we do need to spend just a few moments uh, on these first few verses in our passage tonight, because this is really a, the church is really in a, a fragile position here. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about the, the death of James, but this is a significant and really a, a terrible thing for the early church. James and his brother John are probably most famous for those of us looking back on this now for the, this encounter they have with Jesus while he was still alive, while they were following him. Uh, James and his brother John are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, definitely a top 10 nickname in all of Scripture. <laughs> and it, uh, you know, it says something about their personality, too, that nickname. It communicates a lot. So they go up to Jesus at one point and they ask him, they say, uh, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, when you come in glory into your kingdom, can we be sitting on your right hand and on your left hand when you come in? And Jesus responds, uh, you can hear the compassion in his words as he responds to them. He says, James and John, you have no idea what you're asking me. 
Are you willing to drink from the cup from which I'm going to drink? The path to glory in my kingdom is through suffering and being a servant, not at snatching at power. So that's probably James's most famous story up to this point. But the church in this context knows him primarily as an apostle, as one who was uh, appointed by Christ to be a leader in his church. And with all of the, the persecution that we've seen up to this point in Acts, we've looked at some of it together, we have a first here. James is the first apostle to be martyred that we know of. He's not the last, but the church has never experienced something like this before. And now Peter is imprisoned and he's facing the same fate as James. So in the church's mind, surely all of the apostles are next. You know, and if Herod's going to keep on killing the apostles of Christ, is there any hope for the church? This place of, uh, of, of fear and doubt that they find themselves in is the perfect place for God to break in once again, showing his power to his new people, the church, to show that not only that he loves delivering people from bondage, that he loves seeing chains fall off of people, but he's committed to his people. He's committed to his church. He's committed to carrying it forward. So we're going to look at uh, two things together as we explore this passage tonight, the purpose of God's power and the keys to his power. So what is God's purpose here in delivering Peter in this miraculous way. Apparently, uh, Peter is a very valuable prisoner in Herod's mind. The resources that he uses to uh, keep Peter in prison, to guard him, are pretty excessive if you think about it. You know, four squads of soldiers, so that's going to be 16 soldiers who are guarding him in shifts around the clock. He is chained to two soldiers at a time, all the time, and then there are guards outside the door and another set of guards after that. Guards on guards, and he's chained to the guards who are next to him. He's in jail for at least a few days at this point. So there's this, uh, there's this pause in certain judicial processes during the Passover uh, at this time. And so Peter cannot be sentenced to death during the Passover. That is not allowed, and so he has to wait. And then at the last minute, right before... Herod is going to bring him out to have him executed. The angel of the Lord shows up, divine messenger of God, and frees Peter and makes all of this uh, excessive protection look like nothing while he does it. Peter walks out of prison. He's kind of in a daze at this point. And then the angel is gone. Now, I think for, uh, for many of us in our context... Our first reaction to stories like this is often one of skepticism, at least to, to one degree or another, you know, especially for those of us who have been uh, raised in the Western kind of post-enlightenment context of America that we find ourselves in today. You know, if you're here tonight as someone who doesn't think that things like this are possible at all and that stories like this, especially this one, are probably just made up, I want to... Uh, encourage you, first of all, to read this story within the context of the whole book of Acts to get a sense for why Luke tells us stories like this. But maybe even better than reading through Acts, I would encourage you to, uh, to read through the Gospels together, the stories of Christ. And if you do that, one of the things you'll see is that the Bible has this really strange habit of providing way more details than it needs to. 
Luke, who uh, wrote our book, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, is maybe most famous for this. He's especially known for this quality in his writing. Why would he name drop Rhoda? Why does he give her a name? Why does that matter? It makes sense to name Herod and Peter and James as important socially and culturally as they were. But why Rhoda? Well, one of the primary reasons, there are many, but one of them is that you can go and talk to her. He wrote this book to be read by people in his own context, not just for people, you know, in the future. And Rhoda, if she's in a house like this, you know, Mary is clearly a woman of high social standing. This house is not hard to find. There aren't a lot of houses with this kind of space, with courtyards. You can go and find Rhoda and talk to her and ask her questions. The Bible does this over and over again when it describes Jesus' ministry. So often it says that, you know, he was in this town or he stayed in this person's house. He was talking to this person. You know, for ancient people, the authors of Scripture have a surprisingly modern understanding of the importance of verifiability in their stories. Another thing I, I would say is this, for those of us who are skeptical about these things, the purpose of miracles is not to draw people into cognitive belief that supernatural things exist. That's just not the, the primary means by which God has chosen to reveal himself and his wisdom. You know, the purpose of these signs of wonders is to draw people into worship. That's what God is after in stories like this. He's after your worship. He wants you to, to know him and be known by him. He wants relationship. The, the angel of the Lord doesn't just show up to satisfy our curiosities about whether or not supernatural things exist. He shows up to rescue his church from the brink of despair he shows up to remind his church that Christ is still worthy of their worship, to remind them that God will not fail his church. That's when he shows up. And this is why uh, Peter is so quick to tell people at the end of the story, to get the word out. He barely even gets the story out of his mouth and he says, tell James, tell the brothers, tell everybody. Make sure they know. Don't you just love when you have really good news to share with people? Um, I don't actually work for the church. I'm an elder and a pastoral intern, but most of my time is spent working at the, this company I've been at since I graduated college. And probably the best part of my job is when I get to tell somebody that they've gotten a bonus or they've gotten a raise or they've gotten a promotion or something like that. And this just happened last week. Our uh, HR department approved a, a well-deserved um, significant raise for someone on my team. And I know it's really gonna be great for him and his family. And I think about... Um, all the different meetings that I have at work that I'm really not looking forward to, that I'm kind of dreading, that just feel like going through the motions. And then I get an email like this and I'm like straight to my Outlook calendar, putting something on the calendar, booking this time. You know, I want to meet with this person, share this good news with them. Peter understood that these beautiful stories of God are given to us to be shared to bring people into worship. You know, he knows that James has been killed. The, the James he talks about later in the passage, by the way, that's a, it's a different James than the one in the first few verses. A lot of the same names show up in the New Testament over and over again. But he knows that James has been killed. He knows that Herod is coming after the church and that this is terrifying for the church. And in that context, he knows 
the power of good news for his people. He sees that not even King Herod is going to hold back God's church, and he says, people need to know this. They need to know that God is active, that he's on the move, that he's not silent, that Herod's not going to win. Can we be a, a church that is quick to share good news with each other, not in a way that brings honor and glory to ourselves? If you read the next few verses of this, um, Acts 12, you'll see the dangers that come with that. Herod's story comes to a gruesome end. But can we be a church that is quick to share stories with people that will remind them that they worship a good God who is still active, who loves to give his people good news? Stories like this one of Peter's deliverance are given to remind us that the God that we worship is worthy of that worship. That's why he displays his power in these miraculous ways. That's why he gives us good news. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our energy. He's worthy of our worship. But more importantly for this context, he is also worthy of our prayer. So This is the second point now, the, the key to power. Uh, imagine, if you will, with me, one of those old, like, janitor's keychains, right? I feel like I used to see those maybe more than I do now in TV shows and movies where the, the main character will be on the run in, like, a school or an office building, and uh, they'll get stuck at a door that's locked, but somebody in their party happens to have the maintenance guy's keys, and they fumble with them, trying to find the right one, and then they do at the last minute, just in the nick of time, amongst all those hundreds of keys that this guy has. Thinking about prayer, where we find ourselves in life, whether we're in a high place or a low place, whether we're happy or sad, lonely or busy, there's one key that we need to access the throne room of God, the only room that we need access to. There aren't a bunch of hoops to jump through. One key, that's prayer. There's some things that uh, this key of prayer, if you will, is not going to unlock. It's not a, a key to unlock the future. Prayer is not a, God doesn't give us a formula to be able to predict what's going to happen. There will always be elements of mystery in God's plan for the world. We just don't have the ability to comprehend all that God is doing, all of the reasons why he does what he does. We're too small for that. You don't know why he chooses to deliver Peter and not James or Stephen or others. But the one thing that the key of prayer does always unlock is power. The power of the Holy Spirit in you that work in the church. What we've seen in the, the book of Acts is that these are a people who are committed to communal prayer, to coming together and praying as a church in their context, that meant gathering together in people's homes daily, Acts tells us. This was such a, a normal part of their rhythm of their church life that Peter knows exactly where to go to find people when he's delivered from prison. He knows that they're going to be at Mary's house. He's right. Praying together was just a, just a regular part of their rhythm as a church. And so we read this in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. 
The church in Jerusalem is, uh, what this means here is they're giving everything that they have. They are stretching themselves. They are pleading with the Lord on Peter's behalf and for his deliverance. Church in Jerusalem has thousands and thousands of people by this point, and so there are probably lots of these different gatherings going on. This isn't the only one. And this is one thing that I think the church of God in Acts understood that I hope that we would take notice of as a church and take to heart the power of communal prayer. Now, in a sense, um, all prayer is communal prayer, right? When uh, you look back at Jesus's prayer where he taught his people how to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, the first words are, our Father. Even when we're praying by ourselves, there's this sense where we are united with other people, with other believers as we pray. But it's also fitting for God's people to gather together, to pray together, to uh, encourage one another, to pray for one another, to learn how to pray well. There are a lot of people in this church who, uh, whose prayers have been a boon to my faith, and I hope you all get to experience that too. But we see something else here, too, in this text. God has actually tied his purposes to the prayers of the church. This is a, a question that I think comes up over and over again as we think about Christian prayer. Why do we pray if God already knows what is going to happen? Well, we pray because God in his providence has ordained that things will happen because people pray for them. There's this, this unbreakable connection between the prayers of his people here and what God actually does in delivering Peter. His deliverance from prison is intimately connected with the prayers that are offered to him by the church. You know, one of the things I, uh, I love about this story is the, the irony of the scene with Rhoda and the people in this uh, gathering at Mary's house at the end. By the way, we don't need to feel guilty about finding humor in the Bible. Uh, sometimes stories are actually funny. A professor who says, you know, you can't read the story of Esther without being convinced that God actually has a sense of humor. And it shows up over and over again. <laughs> but in this case, I, I think this scene reveals something that's really important to us too. We might be tempted to think that the early church are these people of extremely strong faith that we just like can't really measure up to ourselves because they were so close to everything that was happening. But they're praying from a place of weakness just as much as we are. You know, they're, they're shocked when Peter actually shows up, right? I don't know if they had given up by this point. Maybe they'd been praying for so long and they just gave up. Maybe they weren't actually confident that God was going to answer the prayers that they were offering. But they're surprised by what God would do through their prayers. They knew the power of God to work through prayers. They had been uh, exercising this muscle. They had been training it as a community to come together often for moments like this. And then God still moves in unexpected ways for them. Uh, I go to seminary right now at, um, in Northern Virginia, and uh, a couple years ago I was talking to a friend and classmate named Daniel, and Daniel's on staff at a, a Korean church out in Maryland where most of the members uh, from the church are uh, either Korean immigrants or children of Korean immigrants. And we were just sharing small talk together, chatting for after class one day, I forget which. And he mentioned that he had to wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning to lead a 6 a.m. prayer meeting at his church. And I, 
I raised my eyebrows. I asked him, do you do that a lot? He said, yeah, I do it every day. I said, you know, people actually show up for that? He said, yeah, of course. <laughs> Talked to other uh, Korean-American seminary students and pastors over the years who share similar stories about the, uh, the priority of communal prayer in their churches. And I share that not to uh, say that we need to start having 6 a.m. daily prayer meetings as a church. Uh, and I'm also aware that, you know, prayer, like any other spiritual discipline, can become a legalistic burden if it's not handled properly. But I can't help but compare some of these stories to my own context. You know, I grew up in a, a church sort of similar to the traditions of this church, kind of this Northern European Reformed heritage that has now been in America for decades, even a couple centuries, and starting to blend with American evangelical culture and so that's a, a similar kind of dominant culture that our denomination has its roots in uh, as a church that this church is a part of. And there are a lot of wonderful things uh, about the church I grew up in, the church culture that I grew up in, a lot of things that I'm happy shaped me in that culture. But of all the, the strengths, uh, communal, earnest prayer like this, I really, I don't think it's one of them. You know, as, as our church seeks to kind of grow into this cross-cultural vision that we've been reading about the last couple of chapters and throughout, really, the whole Bible. You know, if you're, in, if you're from one of these church traditions where maybe this is a strength for you, uh, some of us, you know, people like me, might need a little bit of a nudge sometimes to remind us of the importance of communal prayer and how valuable this is. We might need a prophetic word from you sometimes. We might even need uh, your leadership as our church tries to grow in prayer. The, the vision of communal prayer in Acts is just too good for us to pass up on. God means to work in power through our prayers as a community. We might even be able to, or we might not even be able to imagine the surprises that God has in store for us through the prayers of this group, this church. Uh, I'm going to move us to close and wrap us up uh, thinking about one last question here, one last thought. Who is responsible for preserving the church? It's not the earthly political powers. It's not church leaders. It's not Glenn. I would say that even if he were here. It's not the apostles. You know, look at how passive Peter is in this story. He's, this, uh, he's like a titan in the early church. He is the guy, and he's got nothing to offer here. Nothing he can do on his own here. No, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the ruler and protector of his church. And would Christ come to die to leave his bride in the hands of someone else? Would he go to hell and back just to watch his church kind of slowly fade away over time? When he died on the cross as our redeemer, he claimed a new people for himself that we call his church, and he's not going to let go. His death and his resurrection, his ascension, it guarantees the preservation of his church. Nothing can stand against the church with Christ as its head. Not Herod, no king, no president. The very gates of hell cannot stand against Christ's church. And every time Christ breaks in to disrupt some of the fallen rhythms of this world with some wonderful act of power like the one we read about here, he gives us 
a little glimpse of the, the heavenly restoration that awaits us. That by the power of the Spirit, we can even experience together now in this life. You know, it, uh, it doesn't, seem like a, doesn't seem like a major thing for us to gather together in this place as a community, right? To, to live and uh, interact with one another during the week, to be in each other's homes, to gather for worship once a week, to be a part of each other's lives. But the lengths that God has gone to, to unite us to himself, to unite us to each other, we could just grasp that. I don't think any of us would ever underestimate the power of gathering here together, the power of coming together in prayer, the significance of that, the significance of these things. We, uh, we worship a God who loves freeing people from bondage, who loves his church, and who longs to hear us come before him, pray to him together. So will you all please pray with me? We close. God, we do long for this power. We long for your work in our church and in our community. God, would you give us the faith to approach you in prayer, to ask for big things, not just safe things, to learn how to better pray for one another, to encourage one another through this gift. And God, would you uh, please, would you bless us as we go from here? Would you inspire us and would you uh, make us uh, servants of you in whatever context we go to from here. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.